Welcome to The Lens, hosted by Catalysis, where we get a glimpse inside healthcare organizations that are transforming to a culture of improvement to deliver continually higher value outcomes for patients, staff, and communities. Visit createvalue.org slash the lens for more information about Catalysis. Welcome back to The Lens. I'm your host, Peter Mariahazi. As we all know, data is important to driving improvement work. It is not always easy to access the right information or to analyze it in a way that can be used to create real sustainable change. In 2019, Dr. Dan Lowe from Seattle Children's Hospital presented a learning session on how they were using data to improve outcomes. Today, it's my pleasure to have him join us to discuss how every patient can make the system smarter when it comes to data collection, and also learn more about our 2022 Lean Healthcare Transformation Summit, June 8th and 9th at the createvalue.org slash summits webpage. Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Very much, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's start out. Let's tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your work, your organization. Who's Dan? Okay, so I actually have two uh, jobs, and I'll be speaking to both of them today. Uh, my primary job these days, I'm the Chief Medical Officer of Adaptix, which is a software uh, self-service system that enables clinicians to use the EMR data. Uh, my other job uh, uh, is I'm a pediatric anesthesiologist. I'm a physician by training. I've been practicing for about 20-odd uh, years and uh, have a background in human factors, um, creating high-performing teams, and process improvement. And the, those two things kind of marry together. And when you put process improvement and human factors and data science all in um, a package, then you get a pretty uh, potent combination there. That's great. And, you know, for many people, data is kind of this, you know, ephoral, you know, un, not understandable type thing. But in your presentation, you use the terms real world data and real-world evidence. Tell us more what you mean by that. Okay, so real-world data uh, in its most simplest form is healthcare data that is routinely collected as part and parcel of giving you care. So when you come to a hospital, say, say it's a clinic, they will uh, weigh you, they will measure your height, they will measure your blood pressure um, as part and parcel of giving you care. And those timestamps of and those numbers are recorded so that's real world data um, if you take if you go to an operating room example um, kind of my environment um, the time you check into the uh, uh, the front desk is recorded because that's when you checked in the time you get brought back into the pre-op zone is recorded all your vitals are recorded the time you go into the OR the time the the surgery starts the certain surgery finishes all your medications and all the events they recorded. Um, now, why they recorded? Partly compliance uh, with medical documentation, um, largely so that the hospital is able to generate a bill. Um, you have to prove you gave care. So, and the EMR, uh, the electronic medical record, is a very effective tool, has been very effective at making clinical staff record data uh, as part of this system. Uh, my interest in it is. Well, most of this data is unused. 
um, why can't we use that very same data? There is gold and goodness and value in there. If only we can unlock it. And so that's why uh, Adaptix exists. And that's why, you know, I, I have this kind of like two job uh, role these days. It sounds like a kind of a dream job for you, but many times in data, there's something called a signal and something called noise. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between a noise and signal in the context of variation of observe observations and data? Um, yeah, well, let's let, let, let's unpack that a little bit. So, um, variation is a concept uh, that is actually poorly understood, not just in healthcare, uh, but just across um, society. Probably the easiest way to unpack this is for me to take it out of a clinical context. Um, so imagine, imagine you uh, drive to work and um, your commute time. In fact, I'll ask you, when you were driving pre-pandemic to work, how long did it take you to get to work? On Between four and a half to five minutes. Four, <laughs> that's really fast. Okay. I'm very close. <laughs> okay, so it was a five-minute drive. Now, imagine if you were to record the five-minute commute time every day that you commuted, and then you plotted the weekly average right so this week week one january um it's you know five five and a half minutes week two it might be five minutes week three it might be four and a half minutes because there's variation right and and so you don't think between week one and week three that you've improved your commute you don't you just go well it took five and a half and then it took four and a half and that's within what i expect so you already intuitively understand that there's no straight lines when it comes to mapping your commute time. There's no straight lines in biology. There's no straight lines in, in healthcare. And so, but what, let's do a thought experiment. So you plotted this and it's, you know, it's going to fluctuate around the five minute mark. Well, what happens if I, I don't know, I gave you an e-bike as a present and suddenly you don't have to get stuck at the lights. You can ride at 25 miles an hour. It's amazing. And, and now you're getting to work in two minutes. And so week five or week, you know, your commute time is now two minutes and week six, it's two and a half minutes and week seven, it's 2.3 minutes. Now you're fluctuating around a different mean. That's a signal. Okay. So the first, what I was describing was variation as noise in the system. What you want to do is I want to have the sensitivity to detect when do I actually see a signal? And a signal can be an improvement. In this time, you're getting to work faster. Um, and or it could be a it could be a deterioration in your system, right? Mm -hmm. um, so in, the essence of understanding if you understand the concept of variation and mathematically how to plot that and present that to someone they can understand. And so they're not looking at a week to week shift and saying, oh, it's better. Oh, it's worse. Oh, it's better. Oh, it's worse. It's like, oh, no, I'm fluctuating around in the first example, a five minutes uh, kind of mean. And now I'm fluctuating around a two, two and a half minute mean. The system's changed. So that's what I mean by signal and noise. Does that make sense? It does. And actually, it made me think of an analogy um, that's used many times in climate change. They yeah. talk about the variance in temperature, high and low, but by and large, the signal is mm -hmm. going up. And, mm -hmm. and it was uh, um, actually in, in the TV show Cosmos. It yeah. was a great example um, given in that. So thank you. So if you've got that, you can apply that same concept to healthcare. 
So let, let's say, and we did this at Seattle Children's. We were looking at, you can apply it to a pain, how you uh, rank pain scores for a surgery, how you measure length of stay. And so we were looking at, uh, you know, le length of stay. So we were changing our recipe. We weren't changing our mode of commute. We we're changing the protocol of how we cared for these patients. And we were looking, do you stay two days? Or do you stay 1.2 days? And we're looking at, we're looking for shifts. And so, and all this data is already collected. It's already there. You've done, we've done the hard work. Over the last 10 years, hospital systems have spent um, actually $40 billion standing up EMRs. The, actually, that's the federal government has spent $40 billion subsidizing EMR companies. And the hospitals have spent, you know, each hospital spends two, three, four hundred million standing up. Epic or Cerna, uh, and uh, you've already made the investment in capturing this data. The last inch of the last mile is how can you democratize it? How can you now make use of it? How can you use it for more than generating a bill for the patient? So in our world, the world of catalysis, that's, that's, that's an interesting point. So what are some common challenges of using data for improvement purposes? Well, um, I think the first one is access. Um, I think uh, it's really hard um, for most hospitals to get, uh, to, you know, to, to give their clinicians, the folks closest to the work, access to the data. So in, uh, in theta care, um, I mean, your work, if a frontline clinician says, hey, I've got two drugs, drug A or drug B, um, Half my department think drug B is better. The other half think drug A is better for the same condition. And I have this question today. How would they go about answering that question today? What was the process look like for you guys? Wow, that's a great question. I, you know, you'd, you'd have to say, what does good look like? Mm -hmm. What's the definition of a successful outcome? And how mm -hmm. can I collect that data on different patients the on the two different prescriptive op options and which one reached the better success based on the data I have in my definition of success. Right. So, so let, the, the CL Children's did this. Um, their patient phenotype was a patient having a tonsillectomy. They do a thousand of these a year. So there's a steady, you know, and then all more or less the same within variance. There's a little variance, but they're all more or less the same. Um, and half the department believed that drug A was better, half believed drug B was better. They've been doing this for years. If you just poll them, it's a 50-50 split. The data, or you don't have to do a trial. You can look at the last three years, there'll be 1,500 patients in each arm of this virtual study. Uh, so that's what we call a natural experiment that's already occurred. And so if you could actually dive into the EMR data and in 60 seconds, surface those two populations say, well, who had less pain? Who vomited less? Who got a hospital faster? Who had higher patient satisfaction scores? Oh, it's drug B. Now you've got an insight. Mm -hmm. And if you can show your group of clinicians that insight uh, with their own patients, you're showing them real world evidence, not a theoretical, hey, in the Mayo Clinic 10 years ago, they did a trial and they're reporting trial efficacy. Now they're looking at, in my hospital, in our hospital, in our department, in our hands, this happens. That's actually way more powerful and way more um, motivating uh, than 
uh, reading another meta-analysis from a journal, right? Right. Now, now, the way this story ends up, if half your department thought drug A was better, and now you've shown them that the people in drug B are, you know, have better outcomes, if the drug A group come over to the other side, imagine if they could see their own outcomes. When I switch my mindset and my behavior, my patient outcomes get better too. Mm -hmm. And that's what is totally possible in today's world because you already capturing the data. You just don't have, you just haven't given your clinicians the, act, the ability to ask questions. Um, so back to your kind of first question uh, for this segment, you said, well, what, what, why can't people use it? It's like, well, you, it's not a problem of collecting the data. You are collecting the data you need. Um, the problem is you're not analyzing the data or you haven't given the ability of your clinicians to analyze the data. Most hospitals, if you're a frontline clinician and you have a question, you have to pick up a phone or put a ticket in to the, to, to the, um, to the, for analyst resource. The, that is a really precious resource. There's, there's, there's not enough of those people. They're highly trained, they're highly skilled. But, you know, the average well-resourced hospital might only have 15, 20 of these people. Um, to give you some context, there's, you know, 700 physicians at Children's Hospital and a few thousand nurses. There's no way that 20 or 30 people or 50 people could answer all the questions that the clinicians have. Um, it takes time and effort and resource. So I might ask a question and it would have to be triaged through a system and someone has to decide, is my question worth answering? And if it does make that filter, um, then I have to engage in a manual process with a, with a data analyst, with a data scientist, with a statistician, you know, with, and pull the data and eventually uh, it gets back to me. We actually measured that time at CL Children's um, a few years ago before we had Adaptix and it took, you know, nine to 12 months from you, if you ask the question today, um, by Halloween, you get an answer. Uh -huh. uh, and what we decided to do at Children's is let's not throw more people at the problem. Let's throw technology and innovation at it. So, uh, so that's why Adaptix came out. And now that, that 10 months to one year tack time has become one minute. Any clinician at the hospital using our system now can ask their own question and get an analysis that discerns signal from noise for any question they could possibly imagine across you know, 10 years of data now. So you know, I think the key uh, elements of why can't hospitals do this is you, you, you haven't given your clinicians the ability to, to analyze the data. You're not giving um, access to that data to the people that actually do the work, the people closest to the front lines. Um, another failure point we've seen talking to hospitals is you might have analyzed the data, but it's held in, it's held in a small committee's head. Mm -hmm. You haven't actually used the insight to make a decision that can affect change and affect patient care. Um, and I would imagine in a um, thinking in terms of the work that Catalysis does specifically, for example, there's also some work that needs to be done. And you talked about the people part of your area of interest is also developing that culture where people know that they can ask the question in the first place. Yes. If they don't even know 
what's possible. They don't even know to come up with the question to be able to then use the data that's already been collected in the EMR. So I would imagine that's kind of an aha moment as well. It, it absolutely is. Um, if you open any of the EMRs today, if you open, um, you know, you open the, you know, if you're using Epic, you, there's a search box. Um, and in the search box, you can search for precisely one patient. You can, if you know their name and their hospital number or their date of birth, you can search for that one patient and you can open one patient's chart. And that's what it was designed to do. Um, but um, hidden underneath that is 10 years, 15 years of data, but I can only look at one at a time. Right. There's no ability in any of the EMRs to say, show me the last 2000 patients with this diagnosis aged between these two parameters who have this ASA score, who had this combination of drugs and show me how they did and plot it over time. So I can see, are we doing better? Are we doing worse? So it, it, it was never designed to do that. So, so part of, you know, and going back to your comment about real world evidence, do you have any other, you talked about the example of the two prescriptions, for example, do you have any other examples you can share with the group of utilizing data that really helped improve outcomes that, that you can share with us? Sure. Um, we've worked with a bunch of hospitals now and the themes of what people do when, when they, where they can have the access and the ability to do what I've been describing, there's three major themes I'm seeing. Um, people use the data to drive operational efficiency. Right. And that's particularly pertinent now in this kind of uh, COVID world that we have where hospitals have lost all this revenue. The second theme is uh, clinical effectiveness, which is a kind of drug A, drug B, protocol A, protocol B. And then the third theme, which is really emerging, coming really strong this last year, we've seen is people are using the system to understand equity. Does it matter who you are for what outcome you get? Does it mm -hmm. matter what gender you are, what race you are? Um, what ethnicity, what language you speak. And now that particularly looking at patient safety uh, um, events, like readmission rates, rebleeding rates, depending on, and there are absolutely differences that you can surface. Um, hmm. And if you didn't know you had a problem, it's hard to fix. Let me give you an example, maybe from one of each. So operational efficiency. Uh, we just recently were working with a, um, uh, urology group. Um, and this is actually a Seattle children's example. So I'm, I'm able to share it because uh, it just got published in the, um, in the British medical journal. And it was actually the urology group, um, here at children's, uh, led by Dr. Magurian. Um, and his challenge, uh, from the, the C-suite, uh, was, can you increase capacity? Can you serve more patients? Um, and, but the caveat is you're not allowed to extend a working day. Can you, can you take care of more patients during the working day, Monday to Friday? Can you do more surgeries? And he said, well, I, I could if we work smarter during the working day, if we can reduce the non-value added time for each of those components. So I mentioned earlier that the EMR captures what time you check in, what time you come in the OR, what time anesthesia is ready, what time the surgery starts. Okay, so the value add is the, the surgery piece. All mm -hmm. the other bits are non-value added time. Can you shrink those bits on a system level? 
And that's exactly what Dr. McGurian's team did. He took this concept of uh, surgery prep time, which is the time interval from when, when anesthesia is ready to when they cut. And that was about 15 minutes. And the tasks needed to be performed in that time are you have to position the patient, you have to secure them to the table, you have to prep their skin, you have to drape, you have to perform a timeout. That used to take 15 minutes. Today at Seattle Films, it takes about six minutes. Because yeah. he looked at the work and he treated it like a process. It's a process, just like any other process. Mm-hmm. There's five tasks performed and there's six people performing. How can you make it a dance so you're doing parallel work rather than sequential linear work. And it was just a workflow and process design. What he did, he took um, real world data and he said, "Eh, it takes us 14 minutes. And the first thing he did, he pivoted that data. He said, does it take every one of my eight surgeons 15 minutes or 14 minutes to do this? He found two people, um, Dr. Kane and Dr. Fernandez were outliers. When he, when he showed the data, he goes, wow, you guys are 30%. You do the same work 30% faster. It's not 15 minutes. It's nine or 10. What, so what do you do? And so he was using the data to find insights into his own group's practice. The surgeons don't work with each other. I mean, he doesn't, yes, he's their boss, but he doesn't go in the operating room and observe them right that's not how mm-hmm. that's not how the world works um so he calls them in and they describe their practice and how they orchestrate the team and coordinate the team and um and he, the first thing he does he adopts that practice himself as the leader and that first month he sees his times drop to 10 minutes and so he gets a very early signal. It's like going back to my analogy, the first day you ride your e-bike, you just halve your commute time. You go, wow, that, there's something here, right? Right. And so he's now doing the same work in, in 30% less time. So then he, thing he does, he shares his data with his team. He says, I'm the chief and I, and I, I just changed. Can the rest of you do the same? Mm-hmm. And then he showed them, week on week, month on month, and they got better. Now you might think, Dan, what's five minutes? What do you do five minutes? Well, Peter, if you do nine cases a day and I'm systematically giving you five minutes back for each one, I just gave you 45 minutes. You have 45 minutes of OR time right there. You can do another minor case. Mm -hmm. So he went from doing 70 odd cases a month to 90 cases a month with that foot, but he harvested that time. CL Children's now is, uh, they, they've done this across their ORs. They harvested 150,000 minutes last year. And they're using that and spinning that straight back into, well, let's, let's serve more patients. Excellent, excellent. So, so Dan, what, what advice do you have for those who want to use data more effectively? I mean, this is probably, they, they probably need to start at the beginning. What's 101? What's their first step? Uh, well, I have to say uh, they've they've done 101. Every single hospital has done 101, 10, you know, and the 200 and 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 the 300. You've done the hard work. The hard work was done in the last decade is getting rid of paper and getting your EMR in. That's 101. Two, 201 would be training all your clinicians. That's really expensive and really hard and really time consuming. You've trained every single doctor, every single nurse to reliably enter data into that machine. 
you've done that. 301 is you have built the architecture around like a lot of hospitals will warehouse that data. You, you've done that too. Like probably half, a third to half hospitals have already warehoused their data or they've organized it in a way that they can access it and, and they've built you know, teams around it to help people access it. What I'm talking about is the last inches of the last mile. If you've done that work, but it still takes your clinician nine months, 10 months, a year to ask a question, how can you close that last inch? And the answer is not more people. The answer is technology. Mm. And that's what we've done. We've developed technology around that just to, just to fast track that last inch. Um, and it changes everything. At Seattle Children's, um, we used to, I mean, Seattle Children's, is, as you know, is, is, a, is, is, is a leader, is a national leader in lean and a national leader in process improvement. You know, we, we've hosted... Uh, some groups from, from you guys who've come yes. around to learn how we do it. So we, you know, one of the fundamental tenets of Lean is, you know, how doing a PDSA cycle, an improvement cycle. And we were teaching other teams around the hospital how to do it. It, it took three to four years to complete an, a PDSA cycle. This is not fast work, right? So mm-hmm. I, I go back to tonsillectomies because it's the most common surgery we do in a pediatric hospital. We were taking about three or four years to complete a cycle. We would change something and work our way through this cycle diligently, but it took three or four years. We're now doing PDSA cycles every two to three months for the same thing. So in the last 18 months, we've moved our practice 20 years. What would have taken 20 years, we've accomplished in just over a year and a half. And that's amazing. We, you know, and the examples from that, you may have seen in the press, we're, we're one of the first hospitals in the country to, to have achieved opiate-free surgery for all ambulatory surgery. And uh, probably 60% of our inpatient surgery is now done without opioids. The knock-on effect of that is huge. It's uh, the faster recovery, safer patient care, um, better outcomes, more efficient care. And you're not sacrificing any quality. The, the satisfaction is the same, if not better. The quality is the same. The pain experience is, the, is better. Everything's better. We were able to apply evidence. We were able to apply it to our system. We're able to measure it. And that's your PDSA cycle. You've done it, right? So because uh, if you have access to the data, um, you don't have to wait three or four years. You can learn something in weeks and months. Great. Wow. So Dan, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Yeah, um, I guess um, I, I think we're at this kind of pivotal point, and I tell our, um, I, I, you know, I tell our residents this all the time. I believe I believe healthcare is on a about to do a tectonic shift, and we saw this in industry. If I look at Amazon, Expedia, Starbucks, if I look at those other industries, as what did they do when they were at this stage? They were harvesting data from their customers. They were u- warehousing it. And when they suddenly figured out how to use it to accelerate their business, they took off, right? We've seen that over the last 15, 20 years. I, th- I believe that we are, it look, healthcare is looking in the mirror of that history and we're at that same pivotal shift. We have only just achieved 100% digitized healthcare data in the last few years. So we're at the same spot. The next kind of, thing that's going to accelerate is 
once we learn how to harness that, and I believe that, you know, Seattle Children's is well on the way to doing that. Uh, and that can be copied and replicated across the industry. Um, and I think we'll, we'll, see, we'll see the pace of change in medicine um, accelerate to things to, to a pace that's never been imagined before. Dan, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. It, it, I really enjoyed this. It was intriguing. Thank you, Peter. Um, and if any of your listeners uh, want to find out a little bit more, um, you, you know how to get hold, hold of our team. Um, yep. I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn and, uh, and uh, we'll be happy to have conversations with any of your the Catalysis partners or any of your listeners. Well, thank you, Dan. And, and I want to thank everybody for listening. Um, by the way, the, the Catalysis Academy is an on-demand learning platform that can help organizations build a consistent approach to organizational excellence. Learn more at createvalue.org slash academy. And please stay tuned for more episodes designed to help healthcare leaders support their organizations on a journey to organizational excellence. Thank you for listening. Visit createvalue.org slash the lens to learn more about how catalysis can inspire you to accelerate change in your organization.